0: So a couple heads up, uh, just for the sake of time this morning, we're not going to do group prayer, but uh, I want to assure you our prayers are being answered. Uh, I was down in Orange County uh, this last week, Monday and Tuesday, doing some leadership work with Acts 29, and I want to exhort you, pray more earnestly. The Lord has opened up three doors, which I haven't even spoken to the elders about. I'm going to talk with them about this tomorrow. But there's three possible doors of helpful provision for us to get into our building. And so please, please, through this week, Uh, quit eating, (laughs) fast, pray, ask God to open these doors because we together, as we're bowing our hearts before God, God is meeting our needs and I believe what he wants us to do now is pray more earnestly, pray more dependently. A couple other things that I'm asking you guys to pray about. We're trending about four dollars to $5,000 a month behind budget right now. It just so happens that next week's passage will be talking about money. It always works out that way. Wherever we are in need, the Lord wants to speak to it. So next week we'll be talking about giving and talking about a generosity initiative and trying to get our budget back on track as we approach the end of the year. And the third thing that I want you guys to continue to be praying about is uh, Taproot Kids. We are uh, meeting with and talking about that next step in bringing on new leaders into Taproot Kids. I really want to see a fourth and fifth grade class started for Taproot Kids. So please consider joining Taproot Kids, serving in Taproot Kids, praying for Taproot Kids All of those things. With that being said, we've talked about family, we've talked about sex, we've talked about singleness, we've talked about politics, we've talked about uh, race. We've talked about all sorts of fun stuff over these past few weeks. And today, we're going to be getting back into 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you'd all stand, Ella Burgess is going to come up and read the scripture for us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Ella will read for us. We'll pray and get after it. Thank you, Ella.
1: Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. You
0: guys can grab your seats and we'll pray. Father, this morning we bow our hearts before you. Historically, a complicated passage. There's really no corollary for us to draw direct lines to today's modern church with what we're looking at but there are principles in place. Father, we are to be a people who love one another. We pray that you would increase our love for one another and for all, that you may establish our hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power by your spirit in our inner being that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, being rooted and grounded in love. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and width and depth of your unknowable love, that you would fill us with the fullness of God. Now to you who are able to do far beyond all that we could ever ask or think, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in this age and all ages to come. Lord, help us to take up responsibility for each other. We've talked about multiple issues. But at the end of the day, when we look one another in the eye, you require of us, you compel us to love one another sacrificially. So may we be a people who serve one another. And I'm asking God that you would grant us converts. That you would bring the new birth. And that there would be, Father, the opportunity to raise up new Christians for your glory in this life. So we exalt you now. We ask that you would speak to us by the Holy Spirit, that you would guide us and direct us, and that our hearts, Lord, would be one with you as we are one with another, trusting you to guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. So T.M. Moore writes this. If all that we do is consciously designed to reflect the glory of God, And if we are consistently seeking the kingdom and his righteousness as our first priority in all things, then our cultural activities, our preferences, and our practices will necessarily reveal us to be people different from those around us in the world." if we are pursuing the kingdom of God as our first priority, then necessarily we will look differently than those who are not pursuing the kingdom of God as their first priority. So the question for us this morning is, how do you know what a Christian looks like in the world? How can we discern, let's say we're at the coffee shop and a group walks in, that they are indeed Christian, pursuing the kingdom of God as their first priority, or they are not Christian. How do we know what a Christian looks like? How do we know what a Christian says? Is it the way that they act? Is it the things that they do? Do they have a certain type of glow about them? And you can just see that, oh, that is obviously a person of faith, a person pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness first in their priorities? Do they have little halos atop their heads? Do they have wings jutting out from underneath their shirts? There's got to be some way for us to see, and not only for us to see, but for the world to see, that there are communities of people, entire populations of people, who have made their priority the kingdom of God first. And because the kingdom of God is their priority first, we see definitively different behavior from them. Christians are known first and foremost by what they profess to believe. We profess a very specific set of doctrines and truths that differentiate us from the rest of the world. Christianity in all of the spiritual systems and religions is wholly unique. We teach there's one God manifest in three persons, but those three persons are of one essence. Christians profess this God became a man in Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, Christians profess this man, Jesus, lived the life that we couldn't live in our place as our representative, died the death that we should have died as our substitute, and raised for our victory as our champion. And Christians profess that now, by faith, we entrust our lives to Jesus, and his righteousness and his life is counted as our life. His death expunges our guilt and our shame. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. That's a broad covering of belief that determines our behavior. But here's an issue. Christian behavior, per se, is not always that easy to spot. There's the big ones. We only believe that a man and a woman should marry each other and have sex within marriage monogamously in covenant union. That's a big belief for us. We don't believe that stealing is right, so you're not going to notice a Christian going about shoplifting. There's those big ones, but then there's literally dozens, if not hundreds of behaviors that some Christians would say are repulsive and to be ignored and to be avoided, while there's an entire other group of Christians with those same dozens of behaviors would say not only are they not repulsive, they're actually to be rejoiced in and exercised in. Let me give to you just a short list of these various behaviors, and this is by no means exhaustive, where certain camps of Christianity would say, if you engage in this behavior, you'll look just like the world. And other camps of Christianity with the exact same behavior would say, unless you engage in this behavior in the right way, you're gonna look just like the world. Let me give to you just a list. Drinking. There are many Christians that would say, you cannot drink because your behavior will look like the world, therefore you won't look different. And then there are many Christians who would say, no, you've got to be in the world to reach the world, so you need to drink in a particular way. Smoking. Cigarettes, cigars, pipes. One of our newest challenges as Christians, smoking pot. I know for many in this room right now, it seems pretty cut and dry. Pot. Drugs, marijuana, the devil's salad bowl. Stay away from that stuff. (laughs) That's Satan's deliverance delight. Get away from that stuff. Pretty easy, but you know what? There is no strict command on Christians smoking marijuana. Now, I have a position paper that I've written on this. I have my own personal perspectives. I think it's very imprudent and wise to be smoking pot, but there are many Christians who would say, hey, it's just like alcohol. It's just like having a drink. You use it in moderation. Getting tattooed. Some Christians would believe you should never be tattooed. That's lining up with what they do in the world. And other Christians, um, one of them standing in front of you, disagrees with that. (laughs) Here's an old school one for you. Can you dance? Should you dance? Keep a Bible between you if you're going to be doing the boogie boogie. Should you not dance? What kind of dance is allowed? What about doing yoga? There are many Christians who believe that yoga is actually incarnating demons in the poses, and then there are other Christians that are like, hey, man, I like to stretch. It makes me feel better. I feel good. Engaging in the various practices that modern science is picked up from Eastern meditation practices, like breathing exercises and uh, mindfulness meditation practices. What about going to see a chiropractor? I know in this room, many of you go to see chiropractors, but many Christians believe that chiropractic work has its roots in witchcraft. And you can trace the history of chiropractic work back to some witchcrafty roots. Very, very interesting historical study. Pop, pop. (laughs) What about receiving acupuncture? Why anybody would want to do that? I have no clue, but what about this one? Some Christians think it's fine to go watch a rated R movie as long as it's about Jesus. Other Christians think you can go watch a rated R movie of any sort. And some Christians think that once you get past a rated movie, you're delighting in the devil's playground and you need to stay away from it. What about uh, Art. We live in a very artistic city, and you go to the Seattle Art Museum, and some would say what you're looking at there is the, is the promulgation of, of pornography, and others would say no, you're looking at high art, and you need to, you need to understand it. What about, what about music? Some Christians would say you can only listen to this type of music. There are entire swaths of musicians who would call themselves quote-unquote Christian musicians. There's rap, there's rock and roll with the devil's beat interlaced in between. You get the idea here, right? T.M. Moore says, if we are seeking the kingdom first in priority, then naturally, necessarily, that will reveal us to be a people different from those around us in the world. And we ask the question, how do we know We are different from the world. What beliefs govern our behaviors wherein the world will look at us and we can look at each other and say that person indeed is prioritizing the kingdom of God in this world trying to bring it here as it is in heaven. And that is exactly what Paul is dealing with here in this obscure passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is dealing with the worship of idols in a pagan city and yet he is dealing with a community of Christians who two different camps exist in the church. One believes that this particular behavior, partaking of this certain type of meat, is fine. It's not a big deal. While another camp within the same church is saying, Oh my goodness gracious! That's the devil's delight. You've got to stay away from that. You've got to completely disregard that. That's dangerous. And so Paul is dealing with that. And as I already mentioned, there's really no direct corollary here. We don't live in a city where there are multiple, although we're getting closer, where there are multiple temples to legitimate little stone and wood and gold and iron idols. But there are principles that we draw from what Paul says here. Let me set for you first this morning the historical issue that was at hand in the city of Corinth. The historical issue. Notice what Paul says there in verse 1. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols. In the city of Corinth, there were temples spread throughout the city. And all the ancient peoples, whether you were Jewish or some sort of pagan spirituality, worshipped their deity primarily through sacrifice. And so spread through the city of Corinth were temples where the people of the city would choose which deity they deemed necessary to worship to garner what a, whatever favor they needed from whatever particular deity. So they would bring to that temple pigeons or lambs or goats or rams or bulls or whatever sacrifice it may be. They would cut the animal, they would burn the animal on the altar as an act of worship, as an act of offering. And oftentimes, following these big sacrificial acts of worship, there would be a feast. And at this feast, the animal that was sacrificed would be partaken of by the people of the city, friends would be invited, and it was this huge act of worship. And the belief was that when we ate this animal... We were giving ourselves to the deity and the deity was coming into us. The superstition was that the animal was infused with the powers and the rights of that particular deity. The people actually believed that when they ate together, they, here's a big word for you, ontologically, their essence, their being, their reality would become one. That was the superstition. And so now imagine this fledgling little community of Christians. They've been raised in this city, They're accustomed to going to these temples and sacrificing these animals and partaking in these feasts. And what would follow these feasts is leftover meat or preceding these feasts would be the selling of the meat for these sacrifices. So you have these Christians asking the question, can we continue going to these feasts? And the reason they're asking it is this, the meat there was cheap these feasts acted like open air meat markets and they would be selling sacrifices. And so there was a group of Christians in the city of Corinth in this fledgling little church who had knowledge. They knew that they could go into this temple and they could buy cheap meat and eat good T-bone steak on a budget and it wasn't a big deal anymore because they knew they were serving Jesus. Then there was this group of Christians who were struck in their conscience They were deeply disturbed by the idea that meat that had been offered to idols would be partaken of because their superstition still loomed large in their hearts. They still had a disturbing sense that if they sat down to eat of the meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, they were somehow dishonoring Jesus whom they had come to love. So what we learn from our passage this morning as we get into it is there are really three ways, three marks, of knowing a Christian community. And they're not really our outward behavior, you guys. They are our beliefs about God and about each other that tones our behavior with a certain look. And these three marks are one, we are marked with a loving humility. Two, we are marked by ultimate reality. Three, we are marked by an others-oriented, careful responsibility. Let's look at this this morning. First, we are marked by a loving humility. Paul says there at the latter half of verse one, he's now quoting what these Corinthians were saying. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So Paul gets a little bit snarky here as he often does in his letters to his churches. And Paul says, there's some know-it-alls in your church. How many of you guys have ever been around the know-it-all? Do you guys know who this guy is? The know-it-all is the one who always has an answer to every single question they usually talk with an air of superiority as they answer you in your ignorance and your stupidity. There's an ongoing joke in my house because I I truly, if you get to know me, I love to read. I love to learn. I geek out on any, I'm an armchair everything and I know nothing about anything, but I love to learn about things. And so oftentimes my wife will ask me a question. For example, some months or even years ago now, she asked me, how does the thermometer work? And I began to wax eloquent. Well, the electrons that are spinning around. And I just began to blow smoke for like five minutes. And she's just taking it all in like, wow, that's really fascinating. I finished my rant and go off about my day. Later that day, is anything you told me true? (laughs) No, I completely made it up. I like to act like I'm a know-it-all when I actually know barely anything. Know-it-alls though may be annoying, but there's something else about know-it-alls and particularly these know-it-alls. They were dangerous. They were dangerous. They knew just enough to do some pretty serious damage, not only to themselves, but to those who were watching them. You see, this group in Corinth, they had this knowledge and the things that they knew, if you skip down there with me to verse four, we see some of their quotes that they were making. They were saying, hey, we know that an idol has no real existence. When we go to the open air markets there in the city of Corinth, we know, we know that that idol is just a piece of rock sitting up there on an altar and that that meat is nutritious and we're good with that. We're fine with that. They were saying things like, hey, we know there's only one God. So all these kind of idols, they're meaningless. It's not that big of a deal for us to go and partake. And they knew just enough to be dangerous. They knew just enough to be damaging to other people. Why? Notice there in verse seven, what Paul says. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge. Paul makes a point for these people to consider you may know that those idols are just stone and rock. You may know in your heart of hearts that there's only one God and that all creation is subsumed under him. But then Paul says, there are people, particularly new believers, in your church, he says to the city of Corinth, he says to us. There are people that their knowledge, the way they understand the gospel, it's still in fledgling form. They haven't matured to that place, so when they look at that stone idol for them in their heart of hearts, in that place of understanding and discernment, rather than them just quickly adopting what all of the other mature, knowledgeable Christians believe, they find themselves with a little bit of superstition saying, oh, I don't know, man, I feel like there's still power in that. That makes me really nervous. Paul says, not all have the same knowledge that you have and the way that you're acting is actually going to be doing damage to them. These new believers in Corinth hadn't matured enough in their theology so their consciences were being hurt. And this is an interesting thing about New Testament Christianity. God cares about what we're doing in our heart by faith. He doesn't care about rules. God wants your convictions and your conscience to be clean before him. And somehow, some way, these knowledgeable know-it-all Christians were doing damage to these who had not developed a full theology of the gospel and freedom and idolatry and all of these things. I tried my best to draw some direct corollaries to this in our day and age. It's almost impossible, but here's some kind of shoot and miss corollaries. Yoga. I brought it up in our exhaustive list. What would be happening in our day and age is let's say that the local yoga instructor becomes a Christian. She comes to Taproot Church. Now she wasn't only into yoga for the sake of stretching and calisthenics and developing ligaments and tissue strength. She was into yoga as a practice of meditation and engagement with all the various animal spirits that those poses invoke. And she was into it hardcore. She had the beads and the patchouli and the incense going, the full nine yards, right? She was just getting after it. She comes into Taproot Church and the first community of people that she meets is a group that loves yoga. It's the Yoga HG. They go to yoga every week together (laughs) because they know that when they go into the yoga class, they're just in there stretching. They're not meeting with the snake. They're not doing downward dog to become one with the dog essence. In fact, these Christians are so knowledgeable that they're saying, when I go into child pose, I actually imagine myself bowing before Jesus in prayer. When I go into downward dog, I imagine myself bridging myself up into the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When I go into sunrise or whatever that snake pose is, when they go up and they're like this, I'm raising my face to behold the glory of God. Now this yoga instructor is listening to all this, but deep in her gut, she's like, no, 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 for 20 years, For 20 years, all I've known is I'm engaging with this deity. I'm engaging with this presence. I'm doing this power through me. You guys are kind of freaking me out. And rather than these Christians saying, whoa, we need to talk about this. We need to be in relationship with you. We need to work through this together. Somehow, some way, these Christians were saying, come on, get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Come join our Yoga HG group. You're an expert at this. Let's do this. Another big one within the Christian community, and this is a big one here at Taproot Church, and we have to address this, usually about once a quarter is drinking. Drinking. We, are, we exercise liberty with alcohol in this church. There's no doubt about it. And I have found, particularly the kids that are approaching 21, they're so excited to turn 21. Uh, what we find is that sometimes alcohol in an immature setting is glorified in a way that does damage to newer believers and believers who struggle with addiction. Uh, I'll give you a story that's true. And there's multiple stories like this from Taproot Church. We were at a men's camp out. This was a few years ago and everybody was having beer. And there was one particular guy there. He was a brand new guy. I'd never met him. Didn't really know anything about him. I didn't know that he was actually staying in one of the local halfway houses here. And one of the brothers had brought a uh, moonshine and so, of course, everybody around the campfire was like, oh, I've never tried moonshine. I'd like to try moonshine. So everybody was taking sips of this moonshine. Well, it comes back to me three weeks later that this brother went to the transformed Burian guys and said, I cannot believe that you let Taproot Church in this building with you guys. I went to this men's camp out with them. They were passing a bottle of moonshine. There was beer everywhere. It was a frat party. And the story got back to fellow believers in our community that we were just on some big drunk fest at this campout. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. We're going to talk about how to navigate that. But we in our liberty have to be careful and we have to think responsibly about how we lead others. And here's the deal, guys. And I, gotta, I think I just have to say this frankly at this church about once a quarter. If you are drinking to drunkenness, you are in sin. You are in sin. Drink and drunk does not make you different from the world. And so we have to come back to that place where Christians dancing on tabletops in the name of liberty is sin. If you find yourself bowed over, bowed over the porcelain god, giving your sacrifice of vomit to that thing, you're in sin. Now, the issue with drinking in a church like ours, and and we all wax philosophical. Well, what exactly is drunkenness? How many is drunkenness? What does drunkenness exactly mean? You can just sit there and drink yourself drunk talking about that. Drunkenness is any time you have left being yourself and you are more influenced by the alcohol than you are by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we exercise liberty in a church like ours. But what Paul was saying is, yeah, you know that Jesus created wine. Great, you've got all that theology. That's awesome. Paul was saying, yes, you can even quote obscure passages from the book of Deuteronomy where where God says, go go take shots of hard alcohol because you're to celebrate being in the promised land. I'm not going to give any of you that verse right now. (laughs) (laughs) You've got your theology down pat. You know that it's moderation. But Paul says, are you thinking you know-it-alls? about those that don't really know that much? I can tell you, I was 10 years a teetotaler. I come out of a severely addictive background, a couple years in AA, a couple years in NA. And I came into a church, and I think it was God's grace. At that time, that church was a teetotaling church. That church said for us to be different in the name of not hurting those that are coming in with addictions, none of the, in fact, if the pastors got caught drinking, they would be fired at that time. And for me, as a brand new Christian, I was like, this is great. I'm surrounded by a group of people that don't want to drink. When I began my own process of discerning, like, okay, alcohol is still an idol in my life because I fear it. It's like my identity. Hi, my name is Dan. I'm an alcoholic, drug addict. that That was my identity, and that really began to bug me. It was at the same time that that pastoral staff really began to pray through How do we stand on alcohol? How do we exercise liberty that's helpful? And I was in a three-year prayerful process before I took my first drink again after 10 years of no drinking. And to this day, that was probably 10 years ago now, I find myself honestly in earnest prayer. Is this a place and a space where, one, I can drink to the glory of God? Two, should I drink? Three, how is this gonna influence others? Four, what is this gonna... There's a responsibility about this and a tempering about this. And so what Paul does here is he humbles them and he calls them to be moved with the knowledge of God's love. Notice he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know, verse two, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul says, look, if you think you know exactly what's up, you've got it all figured out, you really don't know what you're doing and you're actually not only annoying, you're very dangerous. Number two, the Christian community is marked by an ultimate reality. These know-it-alls, whoever they were, whatever they were doing, They knew truth, but they didn't know the fullness of the truth. They had partial truth that was very true. They knew that the idols were just stone. They knew that there was only one God, that all other creation was subsumed under that one God, but it was a partial truth, and what it had done in them is it had puffed them up, and it made them arrogant, And the things that Paul is wanting to highlight for them to put them on their heels a little bit, to humble them a little bit, to give them pause a little bit, is he wants them to understand that may only be a piece of stone on an altar, and your theology may say that God is creator of all things, but your heart is wicked and deceptive and dangerous, and idolatry of any form is dangerous. You are playing with fire. So be humble, he says to the Corinthian church. Be careful. That may only be a piece of stone, but when you go in and partake of the sacrificial feast, there are forces at play behind the scenes that you need to be aware of. And there are forces at work in your heart, Corinthian church, Taproot church, that loves to idolize loves to worship anything but the creator God. Our broken hearts are deceptive. Jeremiah would say that we are sick and twisted beyond our capability to even understand. That's a nice happy Sunday morning message for you right there. What Paul is saying is be careful. Because your heart wants to lead you astray. Your heart in its sinfulness, in its flesh, is seeking ways out from under creator God. And the fastest way to do that is to bow down before an idol. And so Paul says, our hearts are constantly wanting to pull us towards the edge. And he's telling these Corinthian Christians, look, you've got these great quotes, but you need to understand that there is a real danger in what you're involving yourself in. And I hope that you're aware of how dangerous it is. He highlights that though those idols are only stone and wood, there are actual demons behind these so called gods. Uh, In a couple weeks, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says, Look, am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? Paul says, No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. I am Utterly persuaded that one of the greatest deceptions Satan has produced and put over the eyes of the contemporary Christian church in the West is that he doesn't exist. We are in the center of an interplay between angels and demons, heaven and earth. We are being watched. The ancients even called them the watchers. These angels and demons are forces that are fighting one with another in this cosmic warfare. And we, the church, are the centerpiece of God's will in the world, wherein he displays his wisdom to powers and rulers and authority. God uses you and I to say their priority is the kingdom first. Their behavior is different and they are watching us and they want to inhibit us and they want to control us, deceive us, crush us, kill us, damn us. And so Paul is saying to this Corinthian church and we today, 2,000 years later, are hearing our father Paul, the founder of the New Testament church say, be careful. Yoga can be dangerous, drinking can be dangerous, smoking dope can be extremely dangerous, watching the movies that you watch, learning to engage with music in a creative and in a controlled and in a critical way can be dangerous. And for some, Paul would say, you need to flee these things. You are to flee drink. You are not to ever drink for the rest of your life. For some, the spirit will convict you to a degree where you're going to say, you know, the rap, the rock and roll, that old stuff, it triggers in me these superstitions and these senses that I don't think are of God. For a season, I'm done. For some... God will continue to mature you, and as you grow in your theology, you'll be able to return to the, I'm reading a book right now on the glory of God and the rhythms of Metallica music. This is what seminary does to you. (laughs) It's amazing, though, what he's saying. He's talking about musical expertise and how that is an echo of God's common grace, even in Metallica. Rock on, right? (laughs) But you have to be careful. You have to be careful because there are demons behind these things. And then finally, Paul says, For your community to be marked is different. He says, you're going to be marked by understanding that all things exist for God and are subsumed to God and that changes the way that you make decisions. Here's the deal. These Corinthians here in verse six, where it says, for yet they know there is one God, the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. These Corinthians, their default position was we're gonna make decisions on what's gonna bless us the most. Rather than God who made us for his purposes has meaning and value in every decision that we make. Therefore, the decisions that we make either to engage in liberty or to ignore and stay away from certain liberties, each of those are going to be earnestly prayed about each of those are going to be pursued with wisdom and prudence and counsel to God for whom we exist, through whom we exist, by whom we exist. Every decision you make as a believer is invested with eternal meaning and eternal purpose. Every decision you make in any community, in any crowd, in any workplace, in any bar, in any coffee shop, sovereign, eternal God for you, made you, and through you, works his will into this world. That changes the way we think about going and having a beer at the pub. It really does. That changes the way that we think about what music we're gonna have playing on our iPods and through our iPhones as we do our daily commute to our workplace that changes the movies that we will attend them, with whom we will attend them, and why we, everything is vested with this eternal glory. And so Paul would say, you are marked by a loving humility. And you are marked by ultimate reality. Reality that invests you and your decisions and your behavior with eternal realities that affect not only you, and as we close this morning, affect everybody around you because the Christian community is to be marked by a careful, others-centered responsibility. Paul says to them, this is no joke. It's dangerous. You've got to take care not to destroy each other. We pick this up there in verse seven. Paul says, look, not everybody possesses this knowledge. Now he explains what's happening with this group that isn't as mature theologically, hasn't really embraced liberty to the degree that these Corinthians had, he says, look, some through former association with idols, whether that's drunkenness or movies or music or dancing or yoga or or whatever hundred other things come up in this gray area of Christian practice and belief. Some of these people are eating food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Some are actually going into a bar and they cannot disassociate from their Metallica drunken days now that they can go and delight in a good Hoppy beverage. They can't do it. They're not mature enough yet. They're not capable yet. They're not able yet. And it it would be like taking my son, Joby, who's 10, and saying, okay, I expect you now to drive. Here's the keys to the car. Take off in my minivan. Go low ride that thing. Have fun. Why would I? I would never do that. I have to take responsibility for Joby. He's not mature enough yet. He's not even tall enough to reach the gas pedal yet. Why would I give him the keys to my car? I won't. There's got to be training and teaching, and that happens through all these different things that I've listed for you. Number one, for us to care for each other and work with each other, there must be relationship, not rules. Your proclivity, my proclivity in this conversation, and this week at HG, I know somebody's gonna say, you guys think we can smoke pot? One of them's gonna be like, I got a hookah right here. Another one's gonna be like, oh my gosh, we're becoming this. Look, I think maybe the pot thing is too aggressive. Everybody's uncomfortable right now. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, where's this church going? Let's do drinking. Let's let's go back to the drinking thing. Where we default to is we want rules. All of us in this room right now, you want me to say, okay, the Bible says the rule on drinking is two drinks. And if you have more than two drinks, now you're in sin. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you can do these poses in yoga and not these poses in yoga. And you have your rules to keep, right? And then we wanna take our rules and we wanna impose those rules, especially if our conscience is weak. We wanna take our rules and on those who exercise liberty that break our rules, we wanna say, dangerous, you're in big trouble. And for those of us that walk in a little more liberty, we wanna say, hey man, don't be so stuffy, Jesus saved you, it's gonna be okay, right? And that's what we do. We create this field of rules, either to be broken or to be kept. But the Bible says for us to be a community Operates in loving responsibility, we take all of the rules and we say, How are we going to walk in relationship with each other? How are we going to walk in relationship with each other? There's something very fascinating about what Paul is saying here. It is impossible for me to know if I inviting you to have a beer with me at a pub is going to stumble you, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment, unless I actually know you. I can't guess. We can't guess. We have to be in a deep enough relationship with each other where I know your background, I know your concerns, where you've been transparent with me enough where you might say, you know, I'm actually not comfortable with alcohol. It's really kind of giving me the heebie-jeebies. It kind of actually scares me. Where I can immediately say, oh, you know what? There's no rule on this. There's no regulations on this. What I want to do is I want to serve you in relationship. That's what Paul is calling this church to We have to know each other, and we have to actually know each other in a responsible way. We've got to learn from each other where our hot spots are, where our trigger points are, and the only way we can do that is not by imposing rules on each other to be broken or rules to be kept. It's by walking in a loving relationship with each other. Number two, to be marked by an others-oriented, careful responsibility, there's got to be a lot of time before teaching, Everybody realizes that what happens here on Sunday morning is like the tip of the iceberg of Taproot Church. The rest of it is you guys living in relationship with your city, with your neighborhood, and with each other. And through time, with teaching, but time preceding teaching, those who want to keep rules, those who are stumbled by certain things that the Bible actually gives liberty to will grow and come into a place of acceptance and maturity without being forced against their conscience. N.T. Wright said this, and I thought it was profound. He said, Paul's long pastoral experience and experience tells him that not all consciences become reeducated at the same pace. And that it's far better to live with apparent anomaly than to force someone to act against their own conscience. What N.T. What Wright is saying there is he's saying, look, if somebody comes into your church and they are just petrified of yoga, spend time with them not doing yoga before you just absolutely demand that they understand that yoga is not that big of a deal done in the right way. There has to be relationship and there has to be time spent. And now we get to this issue of stumbling because Paul makes a very aggressive statement. He says there in verse 11, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. If you you take them to yoga, if you make sure that they have a beer because they just need to know that they're free to do that, they're, they're destroyed by that the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That is huge. Paul says, I'm going vegan for the sake of other people. And I'm like, I'm not. That's crazy. But we've got to remember what Paul is pursuing here. I want to talk with you guys about this issue of stumbling and then we're going to wrap up and we're going to take communion together. There needs to be some nuance with stumbling because the language of stumbling in the church, if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time, the language of stumbling has been used by what I consider weak legalistic brothers to take the gospel hostage. So here's how it works. Let's go back to the drinking illustration. I do not personally, for the sake of illustration, I personally do not believe that any Christian should drink ever. That is my conviction, and I want to be determined to be different from the world, and so my conviction is no Christian ever should drink, and so now uh, this this Christian comes into Taproot Church, and of course, any Sunday afternoon, hey, where are you going to lunch today? I'm going to go down to the pub. You want to go to the pub with me? And they go, it's a church full of people that believe they can drink, (laughs) and they come back to the pastors, particularly me with an email, usually about 18 pages long, about how they've been stumbled. Stumbled. I want to nuance this. This person, what Paul is saying here is stumbling is not, I heard that you drink, therefore I'm very angry about it because my conviction is that you shouldn't drink. What Paul is saying is this stumbling works in a way where this person not only says, oh my gosh, that kind of freaks me out, but because I'm watching you guys, I'm kind of drawn to that. And I think that's actually okay. But in my heart of hearts, I'm not sure that's okay. But then they're drawn to this place where they're drawn back into their old practices, where they're drawn back into maybe their old addictions. And rather than them being led closer to the savior and true liberty and true joy, our practices and our lack of responsibility for others actually begins to guide them down a path back into their identity and their stumbling is actually destruction, not just their irritation, not just their being mad. This is a big deal here. So what Paul is saying is I'm going to take every measure I can to be in relationship with the people around me. And for those that use stumbling as a means to say I'm going to hold the entire church captive to my personal little niche of what I believe right behavior is, those people need to be gospeled. They need to be brought into relationship with honor and respect. That's wonderful that you believe that you can't drink. You can't make that case from the Bible. We want to respect that. We want to honor that. We want to support that. We tout that as beautiful. You're walking under the conviction of the spirit. We don't want to press on you, but we're also asking you to mature to a point where you're all right, sitting in a group of Christians and you're you're not just angry. Now, The flip side of that, what Paul's talking about, is that believer that comes in and they've been on the streets for for three years and they're severe alcoholics, and then we bring them into our group and they're watching us and we don't know them well enough to say, you know what, I think we should probably abstain in this place. We should probably sacrifice our liberties for the sake of our brother until he comes along in maturity, either to say, you know what, I've come to realize I shouldn't drink at all, I'm an alcoholic or he matures to a place where he realizes whatever was driving his addictions has been subsumed under the lordship of Jesus. Does all that make sense? We have to be sacrificing for each other first. This passage is not saying that we walk away and we say, okay, we're doing away with yoga, we're doing away with drinking, we're doing away with this, we're doing away with that, because that just creates a whole new set of rules where the gospel is lost. This requires loving relationship. What compels us to this as we wrap things up the gospel itself. We take our narrative and our decision-making process from the gospel itself. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus, who was all-knowing, knew every single thing there is possibly to know, actually did not utilize that omniscience. He humbled himself and lived in the midst of us. In other words, we may know that we can go do yoga, but like Jesus, we don't in the case of certain people because we are incarnating with them, we are getting close to them. Like Jesus pursued us, he he experienced what we experienced so that he could be in relationship with us. The gospel now compels us to be in deep enough relationship with people that when we sense or when they flat out say, that is really a struggle for me, we say, I'm glad to sacrifice my liberty to be with you in relationship. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus of course is the center of all reality And what his cross shows us is that our sin is in need of forgiveness. And Jesus took responsibility for us in our weaknesses and in our ignorance, he pursued us. He was patient with us. He bore the burden of our inability and our ignorance and our lostness. He bore the burden of it. And so the gospel now, the more deeply we can meditate on what Jesus did for us, the more freely we'll say, I'm glad to give up my liberties for this. And the other thing is, you guys, Jesus died for legalists. This is the balance. Pendulums swing in churches. And at a, church, we're, at a church like Taproot, where we're so far right conservative theologically, and in so many ways, we're so left in our liberties, this pendulum can swing all the way back over to the right, where all of a sudden we have this list. Jesus had to die for legalists which means you may be in a conversation or in a relationship with somebody and they're saying, what you're doing is stumbling me and you're discerning, you're not stumbled, you're just a legalist and I want to walk with you through this. I'm going to honor your legalistic rules of righteousness, but we're going to be in relationship. I'm going to forsake and sacrifice my liberties like Jesus did to reach the religious person, the religious person, so that we can be a community. If all that we do is consciously designed to reflect the glory of God. And if we are consistently seeking the kingdom and his righteousness as our first priority in all things, then our cultural activities, preferences, and practices will necessarily reveal us to be people different from those around us in the world. That's what the gospel sets you free to be. You gotta know the gospel. You gotta love the gospel. You gotta be freed by the gospel. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, marked by loving humility, ultimate reality, and an others-oriented, very careful responsibility. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to take communion this morning, the gray areas in the church are so so many, so many, Lord. It seems to me that the Bible gives us only a few black and whites, and everything else just seems to be gray and so with great prayer, we, we engage in prayer. Lord, even as I'm looking at this crowd, Lord, I know my church. There are addicts in this room. And this, this church is a struggle for them. They, they can sometimes feel inclined to, well, maybe I could have a drink. Maybe I could partake of this or that. And yet, Lord, they're not free from the powers that controlled them. They're not grown up enough yet to drive that van. And that's not an insulting thing. That's just truth. Lord, in my own heart and in this room, Lord, some of us have tendency to legalisms. God, we want to just set up the rules and make sure that we're keeping the checks, the, the checks in the boxes and, and we just create this pseudo-morality that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Father, for some of us, there needs to be repentance. We have exercised liberty in a way that we have sinned. We've been drunk, we've been high, We've been divorced from the power of the Holy Spirit. We've disregarded our weaker brothers and sisters to their own destruction, Lord. We've said, I'm gonna do what I want. I'm free to do whatever I want. Yet we haven't subsumed that decision under the glory of Jesus Christ and the power of God. Father, this morning, every decision that we make, including this moment of communion, is invested with eternity. So please forgive us. God, all this ties into the big picture of how we operate as a family and as singles, one with another, as Democrats and as Republicans, as black and white and Mexican and Asian people. God, we want to be marked by humility because you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross wherein now you live eternally. God, we wanna be marked by ultimate reality that at the epicenter of our life is Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, a tangible relationship with him and relationship with others that guides us into the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so today, as you took ultimate responsibility for us and we remember that at the communion table, I'm asking now, Father, that we would take responsibility for each other, pray for each other, that this week at HG we would look at each other and say, how can I serve you and sacrifice for you. As one of my brothers said in our HG the other night, how can I love you well? What does it look like to love you well? Give us humility, God. We exalt you. Let's all stand this morning and we'll sing. As always, we'll come forward and grab the communion elements, we'll hold them, and I like to lead us in a prayer of partaking together this morning.